is the Roaring Elephant podcast for the 6th of October, and here is my uh, built, not bought co-host, Yon. You don't know that. (laughs) Well, I have my suspicions, let's just say that. Yeah, well, not going into that at all. I, I, I do like the fact that you started just before we started recording by not labeling me or saying you didn't want to label me. And then the first thing you say when you start recording is labeling me. So that's how consistent Dave is in his view. So this promises a lot for this Roaring News episode. <laughs> Indeed. And it's been a, an, uh, an episode of so much fabulous, amazing news that we really had to to struggle to decide exactly, you know, which fabulous articles that we want to talk about, hasn't it, Jan? It's been a plethora of news happening all over the world, uh, talking about human malware and not much else. So, yeah, we've been scraping the bottom of the barrel, I think the expression is, to find something that's interesting, which is a bit of a story in itself, actually, how when something major happens, it kind of floods out all of the rest of the news. It's very subjective, right? I mean, apparently. Yeah. I mean, there's there's definitely been things that have distracted and entertained people, just not stuff that's really, I mean, the, the you know, new NVIDIA cards, the debacle over the PlayStation and Xbox launches, the... Um, they're sort of Microsoft buying um, everything gaming. Well, Zenimax Media, the parent company of Bethesda and a whole bunch of other organizations. Uh, All very, very interesting, but not really the sort of thing we talk about here. So (laughs) what are we left with today then, Jan? Uh, Let's put on the magic of the web browser and we start with something incredibly interesting uh, as everything in this part of the industry banks and finance and apparently banks aren't stupid i mean that's how they get all the money i think so i think so so this is uh the the title is obviously very very clickbaity but this is more about the conversation of uh, i mean the the premise of the article is around um, these, all these challenger banks and all of these kind of cool fintech and AI startups sort of getting frustrated about why banks aren't just throwing money at them and uh, consuming all of their tech and services immediately. And it's, unsurprisingly, it's not quite that, uh, it's not quite that simple. And the, the article is actually talking about the difference between build versus buy. Mm. And when it's when the right thing to do is to just buy a service off the shelf and you know, make some minor tweaks to your particular domain and consume it, or whether you should build something from scratch. And unsurprisingly, uh, the, the banks, and this, is, uh, this article is about the banks, but I think this applies to many other kind of large domains, you know, think telco, think e-commerce, you know, anywhere where there's a a sort of a significant amount of data, a significant amount of um, gains to be had from doing something very successfully with that data. It's not terribly surprising to me that banks in many cases sort of don't want to consume off-the-shelf services because 
if they're just consuming something that is a, a differentiator that someone else, their, comp their competition can also just buy, um, you know, they, they've really just uh, um, put themselves into a position where you know, all of their differentiation is potentially being flushed down the drain as, as is shown in the picture. So uh, I don't know, it, it, I do think there's, there's something here. I do think the conversation about whether whether you should uh, build something internally or just buy an off-the-shelf solution with a bit of minor customization is a is something worthy of of discussion but i don't think it's just i don't think it just applies to fintech and financial services and, and banks uh yeah i mean just as an aside, the first time I heard the term fintech, I was talk, I was thinking, does Finland have its own branch of technology now? But apparently, I was wrong there. Uh, it took me a while to figure it out, actually. But anyway, um, I think the discussion is also depending on what kind of what kind of software. Everything that's customer facing, that's where your differentiation needs to be playing. That's why I do things differently, not for the sake of being different, but hopefully for the sake of being better than the competition. That's how the competition improves. Uh, everything but also stuff where reusing stuff and not reinventing the wheel is good and i'm thinking about security solutions things like that if everybody would build their own virus scanner you're probably going to have less of a know-how or whatever so it should be something that's more central to your business proposition the thing that you are trying to do yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. It makes sense to have some build your own, at least some innovation happening there. But more of the surrounding things, your call center software, ticketing software, things like that. I mean, Jira is out there. It works well. There's more expensive solutions as well. Have fun. <laughs> but making that again from scratch doesn't make sense. Yeah, and the the article, in fact, brings up the point around uh, domain expertise. Like, and yeah. the there are lots of like tiny little niche startups there that think they've got the next the next big thing that they can just revolutionize every single industry by just uh, just use our next big thing and uh, it'll fix everything and the 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 sort of topic around domain expertise i think often gets um kind of a little bit swept under the rug and and discounted to a certain extent and I think that's there's a lot to be said, and there's a lot to be gained from having strong domain expertise, compare, uh, augmented by um, strong technical expertise. Yeah. That that in many cases will get you far further than just having like world class tech experience, but no domain expertise, or not as strong domain expertise. You you won't end up with as as strong a result. Yeah, I think it was particularly visible in when the whole machine learning, uh, artificial intelligence things came up. It made sense to hire a very mathematically intelligent person that could do wonders with algorithms. But if he had learned all that stuff in financial institutions, for instance, and now you hire him as a supermarket chain, that domain expertise, yeah, okay, there's still money involved, but still there's a big difference in what the domain is. Yeah having data scientists that not only know the technology of how to do the machine learning but also know how your business works is i would say more important to know how the business works because the technology yeah. part you can learn the thing mathematics it's not easy it's time consuming you have to put effort in it but it's something you can learn from a book because it's algorithms 
domain expertise is something you can only get by experience, by having been in the domain, having the experience, that's where the term comes from in the end, and having that yeah, grow organically and have the intelligence to be able to use it in cross-pollination, whatever, with the technology there. But for the machine learning, that was actually something where a lot of the, uh, oh, machine learning helps that much, I want to be on the bandwagon too. Uh, companies mm. were hurt by a lot because they spent a lot of money on talent that could do these reg regressions and uh, stuff like that, but burnt her, uh, burnt a lot on that expenditure because in the end they couldn't really deliver any models that were worth anything. And what you saw happening there was that every single company everywhere in the world built their own emotion detection or emotion analysis model on Twitter. And yeah. What's I mean, <laughs> at a certain point, that's not where you're going to get any value at anymore. Yeah, yeah, and it, some of this comes down to, I suppose, when does something become commoditized? When when is there, you know, when is there a I guess a um, time to market or speed to market advantage? When when is uh, something so ubiquitous that having the you know the off the shelf solution or whatever whatever it might be however you want to describe it the the buy sort of solution when when does that become the the obvious choice yeah it's funny you say time to market because that's not how i would figure it for me it would be a balancing between how much does it cost me to build the thing myself uh how much does the talent cost and how hard is the talent to find which makes the talent harder and how much money do i spend to buy off the shelf and deploy it that's my first be uh, benchmark then if that's close yeah. to each other you can go to the point of yes but do i have value add can i differentiate and then you can skew build your own a little bit higher there but basically that's the price point where i would look at yeah yeah, no, I, I don't disagree. I, th I just think that time to market for me is more about um, usually buy will be will be faster out it of should. the gate usually, um, and build should probably take longer from scratch. But you know, if it's something that is so commoditized, then like why why would you bother? building your own like the the time if you know if you're going from a you know a first generation solution in some particular space like i don't know ticket management or something like mm -hmm. that through to something you know more advanced um you know you, having that be a smooth migration your sort of time for implementation being fast and seamless and all that sort of thing is far more important than you know, can you gain some tiny, tiny, tiny bit of specific benefit for your industry, for your particular organization, et cetera, et cetera. Could you say that it's commoditized when there's enough choice so that every company size can find a solution in that space for its own level of maturity, size, whatever? Because, I mean, there's some stuff like uh, ServiceNow, I'm sure it's a pretty good uh, ticketing system. If I'm a three-people company, I don't need that. So if ServiceNow would be the only ticketing system out there, even though it's an off-the-shelf thing, I wouldn't see it as commoditized because it doesn't have, not ServiceNow itself, but the, 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 the solution, the technology doesn't have an offering at different levels of 
maturity consumption rates, stuff like that. But because you have ServiceNow, TopDesk, Jira, uh, the Hive, uh, from open source to commercial, you have the whole gamut of choice. And for, that's maybe a better solution there to look at. If you have all of the choices you can ever have, then it's a commodity. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know exactly how you define when something has reached the point of being commoditized. I don't think it's quite as simple as, as what you were suggesting. Um, but I must admit, I don't know what the right answer is on that. <laughs> well, would you say that Hadoop got commoditized and then disappeared-ish? I don't think Hadoop was ever commoditized, even though you had distributions you could buy off the shelf, because there was no choice. You had Hadoop or mm. not Hadoop. There wasn't small, medium, and large Hadoop, even though a lot of people did try to do stuff like that. But for Hadoop, you just had to be in a certain range of data size and possible use case uh, leveraging of your data lake. If you weren't in that, it was not a very small niche, but it was still a, a range of, uh, you didn't have everything there. So, you know, during the last uh, 45 seconds or so, I've just done a quick bit of poking around. So a definition, I'm not going to say it's the definition, but a definition of commoditization is the term commoditized refers to a process in which goods or services become relatively indistinguishable from the same offerings presented by a rival company. Uh, generally speaking, commoditized products within specific categories are so similar that they are only distinguished by the price tags attached to them. Um, it's totally contradictory to my choice thing. Okay. I still yeah, think I'm right. I'm I, right and they're wrong. Entirely possible. I, I mean, I, I, I think that it, the, the key bit there to me is um, relatively indistinguishable like there's always going to be differentiators people are always going to say oh yeah we we do feature x so much better than our competition but you know that that feature x might be a you know, less than five percent of the overall functionality that people consume so is it really that important maybe maybe not i'll compare okay. osx and windows i mean they're both operating systems to pretty much the same thing the only difference is style it's a big differentiator <laughs> Yeah. Uh, also, I mean, not just style. You've got the, you know, Windows, you can run it on, and, you know, Linux, to an extent, you can run it on anything. Um, Mac, Mac OS, you know, pretty much you're locked to Apple hardware or That's Hackintosh fine. hardware if you, if you want to uh, go down that particular route. Um, but you're locked into their their ecosystem, whereas Windows, you've got more choice as to what you run it on. Linux, you have almost infinite choice. Run it on a potato if you like. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think the, we were kind of deviating a little bit away from the, the original focus here. But I I do think that the, the overall um, focus of this is kind of fairly consistent across different... Uh, um, different organizations and different different way that people make decisions, whether it's whether they should build stuff, whether they should buy stuff. It comes down to 
what sort of what sort of domain expertise do you have internally how mm-hmm. how much of an impact can that domain expertise have is is what you're looking at something that will fundamentally differentiate your yourself from your competition um you know you probably won't nest, you probably won't want to entrust that to something that you know you and your competitors can just pull off the shelf plug in and away you go so are you saying it's a matter of money if you have enough money, you should always build yourself because if you have enough money, you have enough uh, possibilities to attract the talent and the tool sets and whatever. In that case, you should always build uh, build yourself and never uh, take off the shelf. No, I don't think so. Because if, again, if something is commoditized, like why would you bother building something yourself? And it, I think, I think more, more of it comes down to uh, yeah, there, there are better better ways to spend your time, no. effort, money. I mean, if you build it yourself, you understand, you should understand intimately how it actually works under the covers. If you buy off the shelf, there's always a bit of, I think it does it that way, but I don't know. So by building it yourself, yeah, but, you're duplicating but to it. Your point, but to your point around like a ticketing system, like, really? Do you need to go and build your own ticketing system from scratch? Hey, I mean... Just because you've got lots of money you can throw at it? I don't use ticketing systems in my job, but I do use uh, CRM <laughs> systems and you got Dynamics, you got Salesforce, those are the big two, the two big ones, I think. Plenty can be improved on those things. <laughs> oh, don't get me started <laughs> on Salesforce. Don't don't even right, we need to we need to change yes. articles before my head yes. explodes and yes. that's gonna yes. be messy. <sighs> Yes, I found this on the register. And uh, for people that are following the podcast, we just kind of finished the whole saga on containers and Kubernetes and how brilliant it is and how we evolved from the barbarisms of virtual machines to the high-tech evolved society of containers and Kubernetes. And a couple of weeks later, we're already old news because Kubernetes is not what you want. The microservices guru, I think his name is in there somewhere, Sam Newman, first words in the article, that's easy. Kubernetes is dead, you have to go serverless. Discuss. I mean, yes, sure, <laughs> of course. Like, why would you not, well, apart from the, the sort of 17-minute tirade we've just had on why you would not want to just consume a service out of the box. But um, why would you not want to just consume services that do exactly what you need? Sounds perfect. Sounds like the wonderful world of, of SaaS computing. It's just yeah, the perfect nirvana. Not entirely. Maybe just to start off, let's define what serverless means. It's <laughs> differentiation, right? Because serverless, uh, SaaS is a services uh, sharing online cloud services thing where you can do something with a product that is uh, offered as a service. You pay per second, per demand, per data block, whatever, but you just consume a service. With serverless compute, the idea is pretty much more lower uh, to the developer part where the developer no longer writes his code and compiles it and puts it on uh, Java jar or uh, exe on Windows or whatever Mac uses and then deploys that on a virtualized or containerized or bare metal environment. <clears throat> but you're actually leveraging cloud ephemeral available resources, good word, to just define your functions as a serverless 
function mesh of things. So it's an even more granular approach than your containers. And the positives there are that as a developers, you don't care anymore. The whole DevOps thing, that was useless anyway, because we don't need ops anymore, because the whole infrastructure, we don't care. It's all ephemeral, it's all magic, which is, if that works, a great idea. <laughs> the disadvantage, of course, is that, as you said, you're kind of at the mercy of what the service provider, and I'm still using the word service because we don't really have a term yet for a serverless service thing, is providing the wide world for the developers to yeah, program their stuff in. So it's similar to SaaS. It's not the same as SaaS. It does have a positive thing where you can still have differentiation happening because you much the, the building blocks are smaller. Yes, but I, I don't know. I I think the 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 delta between serverless and SaaS is. I think it's more marketing than than real. I so serverless computing and just like reading again a definition here. Um, there are servers involved; they're just managed by someone else. Serverless provides a model. It's very similar to how we consume electricity. We only pay for it when we run our electric appliances and lighting with serverless. We only pay for compute resource when we run our code, which is no different to the way that certain SaaS platforms are yeah. consumed. I don't agree with like that. They, well, yeah, okay, Wikipedia, but they can be wrong. As a, anyway, so that is a definition, but I, I, I honestly believe that the, the, the delta between SaaS and serverless is, um, is a, a lot, uh, a lot fuzzier and a lot more marketing driven than it is tech or real kind of delta driven in my personal there's opinion. definitely going to be a lot of snake oil trying to put the serverless label on a lot of stuff but serverless I, washing uh, it's the latest greatest i mean all SaaS services are by definition serverless for the compute for the consumer because you don't see the exactly. service that's basically it's now in this article yeah. just put it up again uh, they were specifically talking about uh, serverless functions so things like lambda in uh, aws and service functions in uh, azure google probably has something as well i don't know google that well so and there is a differentiation there because serverless functions are a tool for a developer not a tool yeah. for a consumer and for the developers i mean there's always been this kind of back and forth for developers, I feel, where at the beginning of the whole data revolution, hey, hype words, why not? The developers were combating the database administrators and NoSQL kind of came to be because asking a DBA to add a, a, ta a table or a field that took too long was annoying. I'll make my own stuff in memory and in memory databases are happening, things like that. At the moment, you're going to have the same thing happening between the developers and the infrastructure guys. And I'm not saying who's good or, bad or wrong, good or bad. This is not this kind of discussion. But you see that developers are trying to obfuscate, abstract, um, yeah, push away into the realm of magic. It's just there of their infrastructure through VMs, containers, Kubernetes, and now the serverless uh, compute kind of things. So there is definitely a push of people that are working towards this. 
I don't think we're there yet, though. I think that what's offered today as serverless compute or serverless functions isn't anywhere near to the end vision. And there, say, yes, you're right. At the moment, it's a lot of marketing going on. Yeah. And the, the other thing I would I would probably point out is the fact that you know, serverless it gets the big buzzword and you know, talks about serverless all the way through the top half of the article. But then once you get into the detail of exactly, as you say, what he's talking about, he's actually talking about, um, or the latter half of the article is talking about um, FAS or functions as a service, service, as you you mentioned. So again, I would, uh, I don't know. I think think there's, there's a lot of serverless washing going on right now there will continue to be more and more serverless washing going on as people try to rebrand their legacy technologies as the new hotness, as happens with every kind of tech cycle. Yeah, and even let's go into hyper hype. I do think this will get interesting and it's already interesting in the world of quantum computing. Because once you enter into quantum computing, the whole infrastructure thing is by definition, abstract and ephemeral and obtuse. And I do say obtuse. And there, you, if, even today, if you're working with the emulator for quantum computing, because yes, quantum computing doesn't exist yet, people. But if you use the emulators, you're also using function language to interact with whatever that... I can't call the server, because they're not servers, but whatever the infrastructure behind it is. So I do think that when within now and a thousand years really short uh, time (laughs) when compute development becomes so complicated that you kind of have to let go because the architectures you're running on are, I mean, a CPU, I can still kind of keep in my head transistors, how that's supposed to be working, memory going from minus 5 volt to plus 5 volt, or a little less than 5 volt. But anyway, charge is changing. I can kind of conceptualize how that works. Once you go into the the next generation of these kind of infrastructures, that's going to get a lot harder. And I think at that point, this will get more interesting. Um, one other thing I would like to say to f- maybe end this uh, discussion is there is also the idea that this is the same thing as if this, then that, or logic functions or logic apps, or some of the cloud providers have service around that too. And actually today, I think that that stuff is closer to the serverless compute moniker than FAS, because that actually mm. works. Simple, not very yeah. flexible, but you are basically creating rules that interact with stuff. <laughs> Was yeah. that technical enough for you? <laughs> yeah, I think that that's uh, that's that's probably about the level that I can understand it. Yeah, but that's basically it. Because once the real FAS becomes this level then I'll get the technical of usability, let's call it that. But until it's at that point and it's not there yet, it's one new way of thinking about what will we do next year if, if we have a lot of money left over. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I, oh dear. Um, I think we can safely say that our barrel has been thoroughly scraped. Yeah. I mean, I had one other little graph, a uh, graphical thing we can quickly discuss, perhaps just show it, because sure. we're not going to talk much about it. It's just something I found by uh, by chance, by Twitter uh, account, to be honest, about the data fallacies to avoid. And 
basically it's the power of visualization that actually makes this good. So, I mean, you can see the URL on the screen, so you can go there too, and I'll put it in the show notes if I don't forget. But they have a couple of nice um, visualizations of how data scientists can actually um, use their data to prove the thing they want to prove instead of having a model that proves what it should prove, if that makes sense. Indeed. Some of these things are, are sort of very well known, some of them slightly less so. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's fun. It's definitely amusing. I would, uh, recommend people that, uh, have a, an interest in data and maybe a bit of data science and enjoy a good visualization should have a little poke around at it. It's a bit of a, 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 a test. If you go through all of these and there are a couple of you don't understand, you aren't a data scientist yet. <laughs> and I like this, the, gam the gambler fallacy is my favorite one, actually, because even I fall for that one. The idea that if something has a 50-50 chance of appearing and you've done 20 coin tosses and you got 18 heads, okay, the next one has to be tail, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I, okay, if, we, if we're going to talk about our favorite one, um, that top, top right, the, the McNamara fallacy, yeah. Uh, oh, it was top right. There we go. Um, which is a reference to Robert McNamara, who was Sec U.S. Secretary of Defense during the uh, the Vietnam War, and uh, he uh, he was known to have made some fairly um, interesting <laughs> decisions, should we say, based on uh, on on how success was quantified, which. You know, in that particular case, was based on enemy body count, ignoring every single other variable, um, and we all know how that particular engagement uh, wound up—not very well. So, yeah, don't mention the war. That's basically what I think of that. <laughs> so there you go. Off. Yeah, a good, a good bit of, uh, bit of interesting light visual fun. And this is actually a poster version, so you can print that out on very large printers and have it on your room. On your, how, why not have it your wallpaper? There you go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all, right. all right, that's it for me, I think. That's it for all of us, then. We, you can support the podcast. You can become a patron. Every contribution helps. If you're on YouTube, you can like, subscribe, ring the notification bell, make Dave happy doing all the YouTube stuffs. You can still go to www.roardgolfin.org where the links to our Patreon page, YouTube page, and all other pages. You can follow me on Twitter using the at Elephant tag, and you can still send your email feedback by email, I was going to say, to podcast at RoaringElephant.org. Until next time, my name is, I really hope we get better news next time, Jon. <laughs> and here is my perfectly fitted and unbiased Something or other. Fallacy? Maybe cherry-picked? Maybe Ow. cobra? I don't know. Dave? Well, if you missed that, that was Dave. And we both look forward to talking to you next week. Goodbye. <laughs>